Hello and welcome to Storytellers of STEM. My name is Rachel Villani. This is episode 18 of a series all about Antarctica. I will keep releasing them every Thursday until I run out of episodes. And right now I've got five more in the pipe, but if y'all have someone or something in particular you'd like to hear about or hear from, just send me a message and I'll see if I can make it happen. So today's storyteller is Dr. Mike Gusev. He is a professor at the University of Colorado, and he specializes in hydrology and streams, glacial areas, and frequently in polar regions, so in this case, Antarctica. He's also the lead on the McMurdo Dry Valley's long-term ecological research project, which studies the aquatic and terrestrial ecosystems in the McMurdo Dry Valleys of Antarctica. We talk long-term monitoring, which y'all know I love to talk about, the types of data they're collecting, the equipment they use, and all kinds of things like that. I also am always curious about how people break into the Antarctic research world, so I ask him about that. And then towards the end, we go on a bit of a wide-ranging conversation about how to communicate all the kinds of career possibilities out there and how to facilitate conversations with students of all ages about everything that's out there and how it all works, particularly in the example we used mostly was like grad school, like how does grad school work? What is the point of it? You know, and this mainly pertains to the ecological field because as you'll hear me talk about in the episode, uh, a lot of different fields have different requirements. So because he and I are both in ecology sort of field, that's mainly what we're talking about here, but it's probably relatable to other fields as well. So at any rate, I really enjoyed this conversation. So enjoy. So I'm a professor at the University of Colorado in the Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research. And, um, you know, as any other academic, I get some freedom to kind of define what my uh, research is going to be. And I've had this, I guess, desire to kind of mix my um, passion for wanting to be outdoors with um, my professional career uh, for some time. Um, and, and academia was kind of the perfect place for that, where um, I did my PhD work in Antarctica in the Dry Valley. So that's what got me started there back in the late 90s. Um, from there, I, I kept working there kind of on and off as I could get grants funded. But then um, I also worked in Arctic Alaska out of the Tulik Field Station. Um, and I've done a fair bit of work in kind of the Rocky Mountains throughout the US, whether it's Montana or, or now into Colorado and so forth. So um, a lot of the work we do is focused on hydrology, trying to figure out where water goes. Um, and in particular, looking at trying to characterize or quantify the invisible fluxes. And I don't necessarily mean evaporation, that's one of those invisible fluxes, but um, around riverbeds, there's actually a lot of exchange of water between the surface and the subsurface. And that's one of the big things that my group studies um, and that I, I worked on for my PhD research. So we often um, develop new models for um, how to <clears throat> um, assess those, quant qu quantify really those exchanges, and then try to look at their uh, implications for stream ecosystems or water quality, et cetera. Yeah, that's cool. It's like what, well, not what I do, but I can relate to it because we are worried about where water goes, except it's, you know, hot, not cold. <laughs> right. <laughs> and you never seem to run out. <laughs> no, well, Louisiana is the opposite problem. We have entirely too much water. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, especially when the Mississippi River is really high, uh, like yeah. it was last year. Yeah. Um, yeah, so one of the things I learned recently from talking to a bunch of people from Antarctica that do Antarctic research is that there is like subglacial lakes and that water flows under glaciers. And that's not a thing I ever thought about, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's something I've been kind of fascinated with too. And it's not something I work on directly. I mean, I have colleagues who do, um, but I've been really fascinated by that too. And one of the ways that um, they've figured out where the lakes are is to actually go and study the surface of the, the ice sheet, right? And look for flat spots, quite literally. And the flat spots are the reflection of, um, you know, the, the base of the ice where you've come across a lake, essentially, that, you know, there's still <clears throat> a pressure balance that keeps that, whatever that, however thick that ice is, a kilometer or whatever, um, and it just keeps it moving across the lake. And then, and then it's going to move with whatever topography is underneath there, right? And I'm just so fascinated by that because, you know, it, it means that, I mean, A, it means there's liquid water, which is, you know, fascinating, but also not completely surprising in the sense that, you know, you've got um, therm uh, geothermal heat fluxes that can vary um, spatially. And, and so it's not completely unusual, but what has been fascinating are the, the projects that have gone out there, drilled through the, all that ice, 
and found life in that water. That's really fascinating to me. And, um, you know, in some cases it's been, um, well, I, I should be careful. I don't want to overstate what they've found, but, um, you know, it's simple life in the sense of, you know, it's not like we're finding the, um, you know, the creature from the, the, the lagoon or something like that. But, but it, it, you know, the fact that there is, where there's water, there's life stands up even under a kilometer of ice in Antarctica, which is super cool. So. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was astounding. Um, someone I talked to earlier t- told me all about like the types of things they found there. And it was just like, that amazes me because it's also dark there. <laughs> so, yeah, right. Yeah. It's dark. And where does carbon come from? You know, where the, the yeah. building blocks that we all think about for life, where does all that come from? Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a different system. Yeah, it's, it's totally amazing. So, okay, so I have a sort of maybe dumb question. Um, obviously ice melts and then water flows somewhere. So if you're not looking at like subglacial water, is it water that's flowing off like the sides or the top or, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, so in the dry valleys, we study um, these, we have smallish glaciers, small relative to the rest of the Antarctic ice sheet, right? <laughs> the rest of the continent with its large ice sheets. Um, and so we have these, uh, these glaciers that come down from the mountains. We actually do have one um, kind of uh, uh, terminal end of the East Antarctic ice sheet, the Taylor Glacier coming into the head of one of the valleys we study. And um, we are low enough, we're, we're coastal and we're at low enough elevation. Um, a lot of these glaciers come down uh, out of the mountains, they reach the valley floor and that's where they melt. When we have, during the austral summer, when we have enough solar radiation and warm enough temperatures, we can melt that, that ice. And then, as you say, it's got to go somewhere. It follows uh, gravity. Um, and we have some pretty well-defined stream channels that have been around for a long time. Most of those streams uh, deposit their stream flow, their glacial meltwater into ice-covered lakes, which are closed basin. So a lot of them don't have an exit to the ocean, um, which is really cool because, you know, then we can, if we can find ways that, um, you know, proxies of some kind to look at how lake level has changed through time. I mean, we directly measure it now, but going back, you know, a hundred years, a thousand years, whatever, if we can find proxies for that, we can understand how um, climate was, you know, warmer or cooler based on um, where the lake level was at any one point, right? And so one of the cool things that, that kind of ties us back to the heroic age is when Scotsmen um, walk through the, uh, the upper part of Taylor Valley, um, Lake Bonnie has two lobes to it. And so it has this little notch in between where they're connected. And his men actually went and measured the width of that notch. We call it the, um, the narrows. And now we can kind of go back and, you know, we don't know exactly where they measured it, but we assume it was the narrowest spot of the narrows. And if you go back and sort of, we, we actually have a team that has dove there uh, a number of times. Um, and part of the reason that's really interesting to dive there and try to understand what's happening is that the west lobe um, connects directly, the west lobe of the lake connects directly to the Taylor Glacier. And um, if you've ever heard of a little place called Blood Falls, that comes out of one corner of the glacier and right into the West Lobe. And so one of the things that we've been trying to understand is um, if there's subglacial flow of water um, coming out of the Taylor Glacier and it happens during the winter when we're not there, what happens to the water that's in the West Lobe? It can't rise up on its own. It's gotta probably slosh over and have water move into the east lobe. So we're kind of fascinated by the narrows, but what's really going back to Scotsman, thinking about the width, we think that that's risen, you know, I think it's on the order of 10 meters at this point since the early 1900s. So that's kind of a cool, I mean, it's only one data point for us to look at, but it's kind of a cool one that goes back to, you know, 100 years ago. Um, and, and we can you know, put that now into context with the rest of our measurements that we now make like every 15 minutes down there for the height of the, of the lake, which is kind of fun. So yeah, it's a, um, you know, all, all of these places are really neat. I think the, the, um, the context of the, the Taylor Glacier does kind of start to tie us back to um, what happens across the continent with um, those, those other parties looking at, or other science groups looking at subglacial lakes and rivers. I've heard the Taylor Glacier uh, multiple times. It seems to be quite a popular place to do research. <laughs> it's like the things I've heard are, you know, McMurdo, Palmer, and Taylor Glacier, basically. <laughs> Nobody I, even mentioned South Pole anymore, huh? Uh, I did talk to one person that went to the South Pole. Um, oh, okay. 
Yeah. Cool. But you know, of the 15 people I've talked to, it's just, it's just funny to see how it shook out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now I was doing a little looking online and it looks like, did you already go or do you have plans to go? So I have not been myself. Oh, um, okay. And I am part of a, um, a program called Homeward Bound. It's like a leadership training program for women in STEM. And they go like, you do this year of training. And then the idea is that, you know, since women all around the world, you get together at the end for like three week. And it's like an intensive workshop slash also go to Antarctica. Yeah. Cool. Um, so that's still in the plans then. Yeah. We're just postponed okay. for now until the world gets its act together, basically. Right. Yeah, so I thought it would be fun in lieu of that that I would just talk to a bunch of people who have done Antarctica <laughs> stuff and like just ask them cool questions or you know maybe kind of dumb questions. No, not and, at all. Uh, hear really? all about the work that happens on there because I mean I am never going to get to go there for work because I'm a wetland scientist and there's no wetlands there. So. <laughs> well, we have one area that we've kind of thought of as a wetland. So let me let me put this past you. We obviously can't identify it by um by vegetation type right and yeah. but it's what's what's interesting about it it's a it's an area that we call worm herder creek <laughs> but it's kind of worm herder wetland and the reason um it forms is is that there's some ice that falls from really high up on on the um the side of of the valley it comes down and then it kind of builds up this pile and that pile then is susceptible to melt that melt actually runs under the surface of the the soil um we have permafrost so it's you know it's kind of in the active layer but then it kind of hits a spot where it's not so steep and it actually kind of ponds up a bit it's mucky um we actually did a stream tracer experiment where we put um we labeled that inflowing water with salt it, it actually did emerge a little bit um in some cases and and then we looked for where that salt would show up and then we looked at like collections of um uh, soil invertebrates like nematodes and tardigrades and so forth. And we didn't see much of the salt come out, which got us thinking that there's a long residence time to this. And so it's different in, I mean, we think of it as a wetland, which is on a relative scale, you know, right. kind of, kind of very different, but, um, but yeah, if we can find a way to get you down to study this wetland, we'd love it. <laughs> I don't know if my particular, expertise. I don't know if my particular <laughs> skill set would be very useful because I'm very good at plant ID and falling in holes. So. Okay. Well, oh, well, we don't want you to fall in holes down there. That's no good. <laughs> That's why I just, I tend to just describe my job as I drive airboats, I need plants and fall in holes. Uh, <laughs> You know, if you're, if I was to just like put it in seven words or whatever, <laughs> Gosh. it's obviously more complex than that, but, good. Good. but that's interesting. That's the first I've heard of something that might be resembling a wetland um, because, you know, in Louisiana, things are on a much faster timeline because it can be so productive. There's such a long, like growing season and, you know, it's winter's like three weeks, maybe. Um, and things just take longer in colder areas. So that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, you know, w one of the things that, that we've been thinking a bit about is sort of the different timescales of um, biologic turnover rates, you know. Um, so, for example, uh, our nematodes and tardigrades in the soils, our understanding is that they turn over on about a seven-year cycle. Well, okay, they, but they, they're, they're sort of, they're becoming active during an austral summer and then they're going dormant. You know, they're kind of going in and out of this, this active state is that seven years continuous? Is it, is it, you know, is it, can you only do that kind of seven or 10 times? Um, and then, you know, what is, how does that kind of contrast with um, the lakes where we have a, a water column underneath, you know, three to five meters of permanent ice cover, but it's always there. It's kind of waiting for light every year. Right. But even in the dark, the communities are changing over. We've, we've had um, flora probes underneath the ice for a couple of years now, and we really see big changes. Um, which is, you know, really cool. I mean, it says something about you remove the light, but you have some, you know, obviously some interactions with respect to the communities that are there, but probably also a, a resource changeover, right? You've used mm -hmm. up some amount of nutrient or, or what have you to kind of um, shift uh, who gets to dominate and so forth in, in those, um, those environments. But uh, it, you know, our, you just mentioned having a really short winter we have this really short opportunity to really study summer. We can go down in October at the earliest. Mm -hmm. um, we all have to be off the continent by mid-February. And so that's a really small window. And this year, just like you, we're staying at home. Unfortunately, we're not able to go. 
but um, you know, it'll be, we're, we're hoping that a lot of our stations are still working and collecting data so that when we get down there after two years of not seeing them, they'll have plenty of data for us, but um, we'll see how that goes. So it's, it's a harsh place. It's a tough place to, you know, have a battery go for multiple years and uh, yeah. you just hope you can hold out till the next sunbeam comes through to, to power up your solar panel and <laughs> keep your batteries going. Right, yeah. I mean, we have some real-time hydro stations in Louisiana, which get a lot of sun and we can get to most of them monthly. There's a couple we can't get to at all from like October to March just because of hunting seasons and stuff. There's like landowner restrictions, not access actual issue. But yeah, we're like, okay, does it put fresh batteries in it, make sure everything's clean. Like, but you've left things for now, it'll be two years. Yeah. So yeah. hopefully it will still be working. Yeah, we do have uh, some of them um, sending real-time data back um, on our webpage. You can find a few of those. Uh, it's weird though. We've had one of the main um, satellite modem repeaters went down in, February. So of course, Murphy's law says after we leave the field, it'll go down. Uh -huh. But the strange thing is that in July, it came back like July, cold, dark, like it just seemed like an unlikely time for it to come back and suddenly start transmitting data. Um, and then it went down again in August. So it's, it's the roller coaster ride that we're facing now right, yeah. <laughs> since we can't access it. <laughs> Yeah, maybe it would almost be better to just like not know what's happening to the equipment than to be like, oh God, it's not working. Yeah, right, <laughs> you know? right. uh, yeah we have some um, real, like some real times that were in Southwest Louisiana that were uh, in the path of Hurricane Laura in, in August. So like about two months ago now. And I was, I couldn't sleep. I was like, you know, the storm's raging and I was just like watching these real times and they, they transmitted at midnight and landfall was at 1 a.m. It transmitted midnight with like nine feet of storm surge. And I was like, whoa, Udo's aren't going to last. And then they didn't yeah. transmit again. And I was like, well, oh, they're wow. gone. <laughs> oh. We found one of them, but we didn't find the rest of them. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah. Yeah. So what I, I guess where I'm going with that is that like real time stuff or just like stuff that continuously monitoring is really mm -hmm. interesting to me. And so I'm curious, like what kinds of equipment y'all have there? And like, what are you, what is it measuring? What are we trying to do? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so one thing I should explain is that we're part of a, um, the LTER network. So long-term ecological research. These are sites that are funded six years at a time. And the idea is that um, hopefully you would get, uh, you get an opportunity to renew your funding after six years. Um, that doesn't mean you'll get it. I mean, <laughs> and if you don't, you go on probation and so forth. There's a whole process to it. But um, but what's important about that is, is that um, it's one of the few parts of NSF where part of your mandate is to just monitor your system. Um, now, you know, any, uh, anybody else's kind of three-year project might monitor something anyway, but, but part of the mandate is you have to keep your thumb somehow on the, the, the pulse of your ecosystem, right? And so we do that <clears throat> with um, several things. So we have um, stream gauges set up now those are not really doing much right now in October when, you know, there's no uh, glacial melt to be measured, but um, basically we measure stage temperature and electrical conductivity at those sites every 15 minutes. Um, and then we have a stream team that usually deploys and they go and make, um, they maintain the sites, but they also, they collect samples at each of the stream gauge sites. We have 17 stream gauges. And then they also make uh, discharge measurements so that we can create a, a record that we can correlate, right? Our, a rating curve. And then we also have these really neat lake monitoring stations. So we call them, historically, they were, all the electronics were in a box that was blue on the lake, but so we call them blue boxes, but they basically have a set of sensors that go down in through the, the lake ice and we measure stage of the lake, we measure temperatures, um, we measure conductivity and so forth with those. We're also measuring incoming um, photosynthetically active radiation under the ice and how that changes. And, and that's kind of a fascinating, um, one of the things we've learned from that is, you know, the, the ice can be, you know, somewhat opaque. It, it, as it warms into January, it all starts to turn white. And so it actually keeps you know, the ice warms up and it actually reduces penetration. And then as it starts to melt, it becomes really clear. And so you've got all of this like liquid water in the matrix of the ice cover and you can bring um, your par through a lot, lot easier. So that's been really fascinating to, to kind of have those records going through time. 
we also have a smaller number. So I think we have five of those blue box stations. We have two active stations that are in the lakes that profile. And so they're on kind of a schedule to go up and down. Now we have to be kind of careful with those because our lakes are really, really stratified. So they're hyper saline down at the bottom. So if you go too far down, it's really hard for those electronics to bring the whole unit back up. But we have a sampler. That sampler collects water, but it also um, collects whatever is crossing a filter. And then that filter gets preserved. And then another filter pops out. So we actually can look at who's being caught on the filter, right? Like from a microbial or plankton perspective. Um, and then we are also, we have a floor probe on that, but we have, you know, kind of your typical sensors as well. So looking at salinity, temperature, light, and so forth. We also have a few stations that are, we just started studying the moats of these lakes through time. So we're kind of doing some similar things there, but we're also measuring uh, soil moisture, temperature, and salinity in the shoreline soils because the, the soils are kind of cool. They're like a beach in the sense that they're wet close to the shoreline, but then they, they kind of go through this gradient out to dry at the edge. And so one of the things we've been wondering is, you know, how important is that water source to the soil biology? But then also, as you step back, if those lakes rise, and we've seen a lot of lake level rise in the 2000s, since uh, we had this flood year in January 2002, the lake levels came up a fair bit that shoreline at the moment, if the lake levels rise, are going to become lake bottom, right? They become benthic somehow. How does Nostock take over that, right? How does that transformation occur from dry soil or shoreline to, um, to lake bottom? Then we also have, I think, 18 MET stations across the, the valleys as well. And so that's where we're looking at things like temperature, humidity, winds, uh, solar radiation, uh, photosynthetically active radiation. Um, on a few of them, we do have soil sensors as well. Um, we also have a few of these on glaciers to try to look at the buildup of snow and, and how it ablates and so forth. So those are most of our kind of active monitoring stations that are out there. Um, they don't replace, with the exception of the one that I, the special one that I talked about in the lake. So they don't really replace being able to measure rates of things like photosynthesis, right? Or um, whether the primary productivity in some way or, or respiration in streams or lakes or what have you. So, um, and obviously it doesn't replace taking samples of soils to count for nematodes and, and tardigrades and things like that too. So, so that's where we're really missing out this coming, this coming year. Yeah. Cause you'll have the, hopefully the monitoring data, but not any, you know, accompanying samples for a year. Yeah. 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 One of the things I wrote down while you were talking about that is that I heard long-term monitoring because that's what I do. <laughs> but nice. you know in coastal wetlands because the monitoring i do feeds all the um modeling for the louisiana's coastal master plan because they're doing all okay. these restoration projects and monitoring things monitoring things that have been restored and haven't been restored like figuring out how effective things are and just like seeing how the coast changes over time which is why i had some of those real-time stations yeah, so a lot of your, like your stream gauges sound just like ours, which I think is cool. <laughs> but I have a question. What is a flora probe? So it's kind of like a, a fluorometer you would use in a lab. You're basically putting out one signal and looking for the response, but you're kind of doing it rather than in a cuvette or, you know, within like a machine that you would put on your bench top, you're doing this out in the open water. So you're fluorescing at one uh, wavelength and looking for a response at another wavelength. And that other response usually is tied to very specific planktonic species. Like you can kind of tease out who's there in a bulk sense. Now that's not the same as getting DNA and actually figuring out who's there, but it's not bad for trying to get a lot of data when you can't be there, you know? So. Yeah, that's cool. I was just curious. I was like, this sounds important. Mm -hmm. Yes. I have, just, I have never done anything like that. So I was like, what is that? That sounds interesting. <laughs> that's cool. So another thing you said that I maybe didn't realize, and I don't know if I should have or not, is that lake bottoms are hyper saline. And I was just like, wait a minute. I think yeah. I would have expected it to just be like all totally fresh water. Well, it kind of comes down to how long have those lakes been there? So the water running into those lakes, you know, it is glacial meltwater. When it runs down these stream channels, it actually does a really good job of weathering the sediments that are in the stream bed. So we have some of the highest like silica weathering fluxes recorded in the world from field data. And partly that's because those sediments are also really fresh. Like they're only seeing water a couple weeks or well, maybe a month or two out of the year. And then they're freezing back up and waiting for water the next year. You know, it's fairly fresh water going in. 
But then for whatever solute load has come in, we have a fair bit of evaporative, evaporative concentrating that's going on, right? So you, you remove the water through evaporation or, or you form it into the bottom of the ice covers and then the ice will sublimate off the top and so forth. And so you do that long enough and you collect you know, quite a bit of brine down at the bottom. Of course, without any wind action, it all separates. It's really nicely, right? Like there's there's no currents to really mix all of this up. Yeah, at the bottom of the east lobe of Lake Bonnie, which is pretty deep, we actually have crystals, salt crystals that are formed. A lot of that is is about how high the the concentrations are, but it's also about the pressure they're under. You know, they're down there and they 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 kind of disintegrate when you bring them to the surface. But it's kind of fascinating that they're there. I mean, that's quite a, a, a testament to just how salty it is. Yeah, that makes total sense when you explain it. But I was just like, man, this is a thing I had never, <laughs> I never thought of. And I just thought that was really interesting. And yeah, salt yeah. water is heavier than fresh water. So of course it's at the bottom. Yeah, oh, um, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, man, that's really cool. I also thought that the photosynthetic active radiation sensor, and hopefully I said that right. I thought that was interesting because it sort of can, t- it sounds like it tells you like what the ice is doing above it kind of. Yeah, in a couple of ways. I mean, one is the seasonality that I kind of mentioned a moment ago, but the other one is is obviously thickness. So year to year, if it's a if it's a particularly cold winter, you can you know build up more ice during the that period after our flood year in the early two thousands when we had um, lake levels rising. We also had ice covers thinning. And so we got down from, you know, about five meters thickness to maybe three and a half in some cases. And that obviously makes a difference too. You can get more radiation through. But the, the one other thing that happens is we have these, uh, these phone wind events. So people might kind of think about them like catabatics. They, they have a slightly different origin to them than catabatic winds do. But big down valley winds, um, when they occur, the relative humidity goes down and so does the, um, and the air temperature goes up. So the pretty drying winds that come through. But what's, what's really neat about them is, is that they, they move a fair bit of material around the valley. So at the surface, we can say, okay, it's moving sediment around, but it's also moving like bits of, of um, algae that may have, you know, gotten dried and, and exposed somewhere. We actually see those little flakes of life up on the glacier. Like you can, you can, you know, we're walking around doing mass balance measurements and you see this little thing on the top of the snow. And sure enough, it's a little leaf of, of algae material that came from somewhere else. I mean, it didn't come from the glacier and it's going to kind of figure out its, its role in the world. But, but that sediment can get deposited on the lake ice cover in particular, we see a lot more of it there than we do up on the glaciers because they're at a lower elevation down the valley floors. And when in a year of really big phone events, the lake ice looks really dirty. And, and so that too will have an impact on, you know, just how much solar radiation or photosynthetically active radiation can get through the ice to get to the, those communities that are living in the, probably not all that harsh of a place to live in the, um, the lake water columns because it's above freezing, right? I mean, it's, it's probably close to freezing, but you know, you're relatively cool compared to um, the, the surrounding region. And, and particularly when it gets down to minus 40, minus 50 in the winter, that's the warmest place to be is in the lakes at that point. So, Right. Yeah. yeah. You said something that it sparked a, my friend would call this like a squirrel moment where you said something and my brain went in a totally different direction. Uh, that's all right. No um, the catabatic winds. First of all, I didn't know how to say that word because the first time I ever heard of it was in um, the book Antarctica by Kim Stanley Robinson. I mean, the book's fiction, but it was, it's fascinating if you like sci-fi, but talks about those winds in there. And I had to Google it when I was reading that book. I was like, what is this? <laughs> and I, maybe, I don't know if that's a, I hear, my question is like, I wonder if that's a thing that's is that specific to Antarctica or is it only specific to like places with topography? And I don't know of it because I don't have any topography. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was going to ask you, so you don't get these in Louisiana, huh? And, And actually you probably don't. I mean, this is kind of like, you know, these types of winds are not unlike like the Santa Ana's that occur in California um, we get um, Chinook winds here on the front range and they, they do have a, they have a lot to do with, these density and pressure differences that you have between two elevations that just drive that downward movement of air. And then that air is coming down with different characteristics, right? Um, than, than the surrounding air that it's kind of starting to occupy or, or mix with. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're really fascinating, but for our ecosystem, they're also really important for just mm-hmm. being something different than um, to connect different 
parts of the landscape than just water moving downhill, right? Water is going to move with gravity. The winds are subject to gravity, but you know, they, they defy it to move things around for some distance and then let gravity take back over. So it's been an interesting challenge to try to kind of get a handle on those because they're most frequent during the winter. So when we show up in the summer, we see the results of them more than we see the actual get to measure kind of what's going on during them. But, but our MET stations do that. <laughs> yeah, well, that's why you have those, right? Yeah, it's exactly. Uh, yeah. I always, I just think it's cool, for lack of a better word, just like the way things are connected, you know, <laughs> like forces that you don't see because it's during the winter when you're not there, but you know what they are and you have these, these measurements, but then you see what it looks like come, you know, summer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you kind of have to get a little bit forensic about it. You know, why, why is this here? How did this get here? You know, uh-huh. and you got to kind of put the pieces together. Yeah. That's a good way to describe it. Yeah. Yeah. Everything has an impact somewhere. It seems like, um, especially somewhere like that, where there's there's not as much at play. Well, there's different things at play, I guess I should say. Like there's cold temperatures and ice and, you know, not plants, things that I'm not used to. (laughs) Yeah. How did you get into like hydrology as a field and then also end up doing like Antarctica hydrology? When I was an undergrad, I went, I went to Georgia Tech. My, I was living in Georgia at the time. Um, actually, I finished up high school, but my dad had gotten a new job out in just outside of Atlanta. And so I was like, well, I'll look at Georgia Tech. And I switched my major from mechanical engineering to civil engineering. And I was just fascinated with trying to understand how the earth worked in some way, but more from the perspective of how can we like improve environmental quality somehow. Now I had this sort of naive hope that I could be an environmental engineer and come up with like the magic formula that would turn pollution into, you know, something inert. And then I took some chemistry classes. I'm like, oh yeah, nope. Um, this just not me. But, um, but I really got interested in air quality and the chemistry that goes along with it and so forth. And, and at that time, this was mid nineties, there were a lot of big issues in California going on and so forth. And Metro Atlanta was not immune from that either. You know, we started to see poorer and poorer air quality with a lot of, a lot of cars driving around on all those highways through town. As an undergrad, I took a graduate course in air quality engineering, I think is what it was called. And it was, it was fascinating, but I suddenly realized, oh my gosh, this is completely unbounded. Like if you want to try to understand where a parcel of air goes, like it's a lot of guesswork. And my senior year, I had to take a hydrology course and it, and it was my last quarter. So I, I will have to admit, I probably wasn't as attentive as I could have been, but it sort of clicked all of a sudden, like the same thing I thought I wanted to do with air could be done in streams and look there's boundaries to them like this could i could do this this is way more like tractable so i started to figure out that i wanted to get into water quality and and hydrology you know some kind of the physics and chemistry to a limited extent you know in in um, aquatic systems and i decided to go to grad school and i came out to cu boulder and i actually you know i probably had four or five uh, schools on my list, but I, I wanted to be out West. I wanted to be back out West. And, and I, you know, I found a program that I thought, you know, really supported my interests. You know, I wasn't funded for my master's. I came out, I kind of made it work. I worked at a um, consulting firm, but while I was working on my master's degree and I, I did a thesis completely kind of out of the blue, there was a, it was something I dreamt up and, and there was a, um, I studied the the Madison River in Montana comes out of Yellowstone and flows north. And they've had a number of fish kills um, back in the 80s, in part because uh, they have a very shallow lake called Lake Ennis. And if it's not managed properly, it's shallow and and very large area. So it's big, like a big solar collector. And, you know, you can allow water to heat up too much in that lake, Um, you send it downstream, Temperatures are too high for cold water fish, they die. So I built a model, a a numerical model of um, stream temperature for that river. And then I I ran it for climate change scenarios. So back in the mid nineties, like, you know, it wasn't quite as contentious perhaps as uh, climate change became and, you know, years later, but but I, you know, it was kind of hard to find scenarios for the area too. So I looked at a variety of things. Well, what if it just gets warmer at night? What if it gets warmer during the day and so forth? So it's kind of like a big sensitivity analysis, but it was kind of fun. And, and while I was working on that, one of my committee members uh, was Diane McKnight and she had just started um, as a professor at CU while I was doing my master's. She had been at the U.S. Geological Survey for, I think, 
18 years or something like that um, as, a, as a scientist before that. She, had, she was a, a principal investigator on this project in Antarctica. And I think it, so it was my second year, you know, I was getting ready to graduate in the spring of 1998. And she was looking for a new PhD student and kind of asking around the people in her class. And eventually she got to me, I, like I was not the first choice, but um, she said, you know, Mike, would you, would you be interested in doing this, working on a PhD? And I said, yeah, I, I think so. But it was right before spring break. And so I said, um, can you give me spring break to think about it? I didn't necessarily need to think about it, but my two dynamics were, for the first time in my life, I had a dog and I thought, oh, how do I leave a dog for three months? And then the second dynamic was I had this serious girlfriend and I'm like, what does she think? I wonder, would she watch the dog? Like, so, so this serious girlfriend is now my wife and she likes to sort of remember back to the conversation we had at breakfast one morning um, about like, I told her about this opportunity and she remembers saying, well, that's a once in a lifetime opportunity. You have to do that. Well, so I thought, okay, great. I'll go do this. But then, you know, now that I've been down like 15 times, I think there's a period where she was like, I said once in a lifetime, not 15 times in a lifetime. So it wasn't supposed to become an addiction, but you know, I mean, so getting the opportunity to go down there was great. I mean, I, I, you know, being on the stream team, that was my job as a grad student. And then also to conduct my own research, you know, I got this great opportunity, but I had to disconnect from the rest of, you know, my family and my life and all that for three and a half months. And, and you know, you come back to that and you try to get reintegrated. And the U.S. Antarctic program is a wonderful, I think, resource for, for doing science down there and actually doing science diplomacy. But, you know, it's, it's up to every individual as to how much they're going to like it. Not everybody likes to go. Like, you can get a lot of people to go to Antarctica once. The, the, getting them to go again is sometimes the trick. Um, but it, it's been fantastic. And, and, you know, to tell people, like, I studied water quality in streams in Antarctica, they're just like, what? <laughs> you know, you got like, you got to readjust that. And, and, and in our papers, we have to spend some time sort of talking about why it is that these streams are important for lessons that we could apply to other streams, you know, I mean, I, when I got done with my PhD work, um, I was really anxious to move to Alaska, like to go do work up there. And, and I got a grant funded. I was so glad I worked with some great colleagues there, but it felt like the next step up, you know, like these streams only flow for part of the year, but there was all this carbon around, like now you're in the tundra with all these plants um, and you have rain and stuff. And then, then when I started doing field work, I'm like, oh my God, there's mosquitoes here. So <laughs> it was great. It's, it's been a, a great journey, but yeah, I mean, coming out of like realizing air quality wasn't my thing is what got me into hydrology largely. <laughs> I like that you described it because it has boundaries. <laughs> uh, ah, it, was, yeah. it wasn't unbounded. <laughs> yeah, it's nice to like know where the edge is. In some way, yeah. You know? so, it's usually not as extreme as like the Mississippi River levees, but you know, there are edges. <laughs> right, right. I mean, I've come to appreciate that a lot of hydrology is all connections anyway. And there's a lot of these invisible exchanges going on, but at least, at least they're sort of, they start at a level and go down, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah, yeah. That's, that's good stuff. Yeah, it's all like subsurface stuff and aquifers and all these other things. And yeah, I don't, I'm not a hydrologist, but I do know a little bit just from working right. next to the Mississippi River. Yeah, um, absolutely. I also, what resonated with me is not scientific, but the dog logistical question. Because <laughs> right. I, I have that same question. Like, you know, my uh roommate is moving out and taking his dog and then i'm gonna have my dog and then at some point we'll go back to doing field work like regular i'm like what am i gonna do with my dog yeah right <laughs> do i get important. another roommate do i just like bribe yeah. a friend like, <laughs> i was like oh that totally makes sense like that's a part of field work in any well, capacity yeah i now have this problem though so um, when I leave, I mean, I, you know, I would do field work in Alaska for three or four weeks at a time, but going to Antarctica is like, you know, five to six weeks every time I go. And this year I got, um, a message from my wife that said, uh, we need to talk. And I'm like, so I, you know, send her a message back. Should I call you? And she goes, um, and then she sends me, starts sending me pictures of a new dog. So we have four dogs now and three cats. And it's just like, Every time I go somewhere, I've got to be really careful. Like uh, I come back to a new animal, so it's getting a little—it's complex for us to go anywhere together. Like, right? Yeah, I totally. We understand. don't travel much. Right? Yeah, it's it's tough. Um, that's funny though. That's just what resonated with me. 
Yeah, I also just find it interesting to see how people end up where they are. And a lot of times it's just like, oh, I thought I wanted to do one thing, but really what I really wanted to do was this other thing. And I just didn't know the name of it maybe or that it existed. And so I find those stories really interesting. Yeah, my lab group, you know, we've been, um, we started to have some discussions about kind of um, DEI, diversity, equity, um, um, inclusion kind of issues in academia in particular. One of the things that I have not thought a lot about, they really challenged me on was, and, and, and for some of them, it really became an issue of like, I went out, I did my undergrad, I went out into the world. And then when I wanted to come to, back to grad school, like I didn't quite know how to do that. And in particular, you know, if you're an, a, a faculty member reading these um, letters that people write, like what kind of relationships did you make as an undergrad with the faculty members, the teachers you had to get them to write a letter that's going to help? You know, it's, I, I had not thought a lot about that. And I guess I don't even remember my own struggle with that because like, I mean, I wasn't particularly chummy with any of my, my professors when I was an undergrad. In fact, I worked in a research lab, but it was in a totally different field. And I didn't ask that person, the head of that lab to write a letter for me because I didn't think they would. Like, I, it's funny, I, I started to think back to that and I wondered, wow, yeah, how do you do that? How do you kind of decide to go back to grad school and sort of figure out the connection? And if you're gonna evaluate people on letters, like how does, yeah. But part of that is also that switch of like, I got this degree, I did this thing for a while and now I wanna switch back. and because you know something else or you just have a different desire, whatever it is, um, that's challenging. I haven't, I've, I don't know how we get over that, but, <laughs> but we all have these different crazy stories about how we get to where we are, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's why I ask that people that question because it's like, maybe I'm hoping that it'll like provide an example of, you know, different ways people got there because it's a lot of different ways. And for me, it was just on accident, you know? I, I have my master's, but... When I was in undergrad, my boss, you know, I had a, a student job um, at the state agency and he was like, here, write this proposal. And he told me what it was about. And he's like, oh, okay. It got like on, you know, temporarily approved or whatever, write the full proposal. Cause it's like the short one first and the big one. And I did that and I gave it to him. You know, I'm just doing what my boss is telling me to do. Yeah, and I'm yeah. sure he like cleaned it up after I gave it to him. And then he's like, oh, I got funded. Do you want to go to grad school? And I was like, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, this project sounds awesome. I would love to, uh, but it was, you know, that's not typical. Like right, they, right. they wanted a student to do that project because that was cheaper for them. Um, and I was already had written all the proposals and was like, and I was about to graduate. I was like, okay. Yeah. Little did you know you were writing your ticket, you know, yeah. to, on the thing you wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. I had a leg up when I got to grad school. They're like, write your project proposal. I'm like, yeah, I did that last year. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> know on, it at let the me time. Copy that. What that? <laughs> yeah. But I already did that. Yeah, so it's not, it's not typical either. I don't, I don't know. My original plan was to like take a break. I was gonna get my master's eventually, but I was gonna take a break and like do because I was in wildlife, do some like tech jobs, figure out what I wanted to do, and just like maybe just get out of Louisiana for a bit. Well, I'm still here, so yeah. you know, <laughs> the universe had different plans, but. but as long as you're happy, I mean, you know, yeah. I think that's that's what a lot of it comes down to. I, I guess I was always afraid watching the stereotype of. I suppose it was sitcoms or culture or whatever of like people dreading work, you know, that work was this thing they had to do to live the life they wanted, but it was always dreadful. And, you know, there were very few examples of the opposite of that as I was growing up, but now I look at it and like, that's why I chose what I do. Like, I love this job. I don't, I didn't always love, I've been to a number of institutions and I haven't always loved where I've done it, but I've loved it enough to stay in it because there's a lot of freedom. There's a lot of reward when students, you know, learn from you or learn from your classes and, you know, contributing to these great minds that go on and do, you know, awesome things is, is really rewarding, even if you were a small part of that small cog in that bigger machine. But, but yeah, I mean, they're, they're, I'd say it's kind of serendipitous. Like if you told me in high school that I was going to become a college professor, I'd be like, yeah, I don't think so. You know, it doesn't sound right. You know? I'm going to make my own choices, man. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. If someone had told me like, oh, you're going to become a wetland biologist and do all this stuff and have all these skills that I never thought I would have, like, I'd be like, what? No, I'm not. 
Yeah, that doesn't sound like me. That doesn't, I mean, that sounds cool, but like, how am I ever going to get there? You know? Yeah. And I don't know, what, what do you think about, like, is, is, is that an important lesson? It seems like that's an important lesson to teach people who may also think they're not bound for grad school, right? That like, it's not like people in, you know, the kids in second grade or eighth grade or even in high school go, I really can't wait to get to grad school. Like, right. <laughs> It's something you kind of discover. And I don't know how to, I mean, I guess we all had our kind of own unique ways of discovering it. Maybe that's the key you have to learn is that like, be open to the things that are out there. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, For me and wildlife. So I had a job also where I worked for a professor in my department, but I really worked for his PhD student. And so I had lots of good conversations as like a junior, sophomore, junior with that PhD student, like asking him the same things I asked you, like, how did you end up here? Like, you know, just picking his brain while you're out in the field. And I don't know if that was annoying. He still talks to me, so maybe not. (laughs) Yeah, I was just like, okay, it seems very clear to me that at some point, if I want to like run projects, I at least need a master's. Um, And it wasn't until like maybe a couple years ago, and that would have been in the early to mid 2000s when I was having those conversations. And then 10 years later, I'm like, oh, I don't need a PhD to run projects. I need to know how to do project management. (laughs) And so like that, I had this conversation with my mentee the other day as well, because she's a college student. I was like, if you want to like, if you're the ideas person and like want to like figure out how to run, get grants and run projects and come up with the ideas, like, yeah, you definitely probably need a PhD to do that. But if you like, like me just want to like collect data, do field work and like run somebody's projects yeah. and you don't need a PhD for that. And she was, you know, she's trying to like explain like, what do you really need each degree for, you know, um, yeah. you and some technical every, qualification, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then every field's kind of different. Like it seems to be in some that like a master's is not really that important. And so some people go straight to a PhD, like in chemistry, that seems to be very common. So I was like, you know, this is all I, all I can speak to is in like wildlife. Like these are the the steps. Like if you want to do this, you get a master's. And if you want to do that, you get a master's and then a PhD probably. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So it's, it's things that like weren't discussed when I was in school, except like on the side, because I was picking that PhD student's brain. Um, like she's picking my brain now. Um, and so having the opportunity to ask those questions, I think is really important, but I don't know how you provide that opportunity, if that makes sense. Yeah. Cause it's not like you, your, your experience, both, both of your experiences are Mm one-on-one, you know, and they're, I guess they're serendipitous in the sense that, you know, you were working in, in a position and, happen to sort of start asking those questions. And now you can provide that advice or vision to someone else, but that's different than like, do you go into a classroom of 50 high school seniors and try to tell them about what grad school is? Like, I, I mean, yeah. think, what, how would you have responded to that as a high school senior? Again, like, like, I'm just yeah, trying to know. graduate. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm trying to be done with school. Don't add on another two years. Like. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't. Yeah, I don't know the answer. I guess it's the short answer to that question. I I don't know. I definitely never asked those questions like in a classroom. And there were professors that I was closer with than others, but I definitely never asked them like, okay, so why do people go to grad school? Like, what's the right. benefit there? You know, I only asked yeah. someone I felt comfortable enough in a one-on-one setting, which not everybody gets. Sure. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think I guess. I guess maybe the takeaway lesson in that case is be inquisitive, right? Mm-hmm. Ask questions and you, you don't know where that's going to lead <laughs> for better or worse, but you know, at least you get some new knowledge about um, options that are out there and the paths people took. I, I, you know, I think that's one thing that's really powerful. And I guess, I guess that's, you know, coming back to maybe this, we, we, we haven't even talked about the theme of your podcast here, this storytellers, but you know, I think people's stories are really important. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just proved that with kind of talking to your mentor at one point. And I would say that there's a lot of power in just asking those informal questions, but you have to find that forum. Yeah. I mean, that's really the challenge. Um, yeah. I wonder, I, I think some of the things that we've been doing at CU in trying to drive some cultural change um, with respect to uh, diversity and so forth has, I think the most powerful thing has been hearing people's stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's, 
you know, you don't know until you ask because you pass people in the hall and you don't know that you don't know anybody's story until you talk to them. Yeah. Right. It takes time and understanding. Yeah. Yeah. And this, I find people's stories to be like, they're very relatable in some way. Like no matter what somebody says, something's going to be relatable. Even if it's like a tiny snippet of something, like you're talking about the dog logistics thing, you know, like that resonates with me, even though the field work is different, you know? And another thought I had was that the reason I think I felt so comfortable asking Eric, the, the student that I work for is because it was like student to student, even though it was PhD student and undergrad versus like student to professor, because I didn't, I think I personally felt like I didn't want to waste a professor's time asking questions that they didn't want to be bothered by an undergrad, even though that may just be a story I told myself in my head, you know, yeah. it can seem intimidating and somehow like another student, even though they're in a different program, uh, seemed less scary, I guess, yeah, maybe also. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think that's, I think that's fair. I, I noticed that I think with my undergraduate um, advisees, like we're just we have some that were assigned in our department and, and, you know, now we have a setup where if they're just talking about their classes, they have an admin person in the department who gives them the right advice for making it through their, their path. Mm-hmm. Ours is supposed to be a discussion about um, where are you going to go with your career? And then how does that feed back to the choices you make for electives and things like that? But, um, but one of the things that I kind of feel like is it, it I mean, I appreciate that there's some respect obviously, Mm -hmm. but I try to break down that barrier and say, look, if you need anything, you know, feel free to reach out. And, you know, I'm sure there's a, I'm guessing I wouldn't be the first on the list if they needed to reach out for some reason, but I think it's important that we give that opportunity anyway, um, Mm -hmm. at least to our advisees. I mean, you know, with a class of a hundred, you hope that someone comes to you with the challenges that, that might be impacting how their performance is going in that class and if there's a bigger problem or challenge that they're facing, like, how do you help them overcome it? But, you know, some of that is obviously challenging for students to talk about and, and open up um, because there's kind of that barrier. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh. Got to break that down a little. Yeah, I have no idea how to do it. I was just thinking about, like, yeah, maybe that's also partly why I felt like I could ask him. A, we were in the field a lot and just, like, working in the lab a lot. And I had that like friendly relationship, but also it was like, okay, well, you're also a student. So I have a question, <laughs> you know, or like maybe because you've just done this type thing, you know? So um, what do you, do you think that, so above you then was a faculty member above both of you, right? Mm-hmm. You're, do you think that that person knew the impact that the graduate student had on you as an undergrad? You know, I don't know. Maybe not at the time because- sure. I've recently, well, it was, I guess it was last year now. Um, so the guy I used to work for his name is Eric. Eric came and did a talk at LSU um, and I, I'm on the alumni board and we do these like talks on Thursday and he came and gave a talk. And so he was there, I was there, the professor we both worked for was there. And so we were just like chit chatting and like talking about, you know, that time 10 years ago when we were working on this project. And I think it became more apparent to me than the impact um, oh. and it, like we were talking about things and he's like, oh, wow, yeah, that was, that was a while back and we've all done all these things since. And so maybe now, like after all sort of like reconvening, um, but that professor was also like on my committee for my master's because I did a master's at LSU as well. Sure. Um, so he's just like sort of been around this whole time. <laughs> but <laughs> we've never really talked about it. So I don't know. Um, well, one thing, I mean, I, I always like to try to have a diversity of, um, of levels of ranks, like within my lab, like postdocs are really expensive, but when you can get them, like they're so valuable, not only to what they, they, you know, can accomplish from a research perspective, but I think also just that within closer to peer mentoring Mm -hmm. that can occur from postdocs to grad, you know, to PhD, to masters, to undergrads. Like, I think that mix is really powerful and it's something that you can put together and then not mess with. Like, you know, you don't have to intervene with like, promoting the discussion hopefully it comes out of um you know activities in the lab activities doing field work whatever um that some of that can just be spontaneous and genuine and educational but um yeah we hope for a lot of things so <laughs> yeah yeah it's hard to facilitate things amongst a group of people i thought yeah, yeah. the easiest way to put that yeah but providing the opportunity is a big step um, yeah in some way yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then going back to stories, like 
it's it's really hard to just like ask somebody what their story is without like a reason you want to know that story you know what I mean like this podcast gives me that reason um but it it gives me an example or excuse basically to just like pick people's brains about their jobs and the work (laughs) that they do which I want to know anyway but so I don't know if in undergrad like I yeah, I probably only talked to like a couple people about things like, how did you get where you are? Why did you choose this? And, um, and then in grad school, I had those conversations, but like with people I was in grad school with, you know, and like my roommate or who, you know, people that we were in, like we all started around the same time or we had similar projects or whatever. And, um, but yeah, when you're an undergrad, I just, I just don't know how, I don't like my other friends in undergrad had no idea, you know, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how the, some of us that went to grad school, how the rest of them even figured it out now. Like, and we just all talked yesterday and I've never thought to ask them, like, how did you actually end up going to grad school? Yeah, yeah. I should probably a, ask. Yeah, I think, I, I think that's one thing, though, that's also hard to look at from that point in your life when you're an undergrad, too. Like, mm-hmm. well, what does the future really hold for me? And, you know, am I going to make the wrong choice here or there? You know, what, what are, you don't, you don't want to do it wrong, right? You don't want to make mistakes, but um, but at the same time, um, you don't really necessarily know what all your options are. Right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. You, you learn more as you go. I guess that's the that's the big takeaway from <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what I've experiences. what I've told my mentee because she's a junior at LSU is just I was just like volunteer for grad students if anybody's doing field work and taking out volunteers right now because I did that some and that was a lot of fun um yeah I was like get if you can if you have the time to work and you can like get a job doing something related like she got a job working in like the um like the licensing department of the state agency and I was like well you know it's not exactly it but at least you'll like get to see and you know maybe you'll meet people and maybe that'll go from there and if it's terrible then you know, you just make another decision later. Right, uh, right. You know, yeah. it's, it's also like, you don't have to have this job forever. You know, yeah. it's just, it's like a start. You're, you know, an undergrad, it's, that's how I started. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, just, just getting to know people and talk to people. And then, yeah, I don't know. I think that this program that LSU sets up where they set up alumni with current undergrads that were in the same program um, is really interesting. It's like a formal mentoring program for like one semester and then it just keeps rotating. So yeah. I have a different person every semester that I mentor, but it's just, I hope that that's beneficial to them because it's fun for me. <laughs> like, <laughs> just like, yeah. oh, I wish is someone that, had told me these things when I was an undergrad. <laughs> is, that, is that all driven by a particular department? Or is it like college-wide, university-wide? Yeah, so LSU, so I went to LSU, right? And so I was in the School of Renewable Natural Resources, which is within the College of Ag. So it's like a sub-school. So the College of Ag does this mentoring program where they've recruited alumni and then they, any students apply and then they pair people. Um, So it's multiple schools, but it's like just the one college versus like LSU-wide. So I tend to get like a wildlife student, unless there isn't any. which I think is cool because I'm just like, these are the things I wish people had told me. <laughs> like, <laughs> That's great. Uh, yeah, cool. I just, and they just started that like uh, two years ago. I was like, man, this is a really good idea. Whoever started, whosever idea this was. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I presume there's, a, there's enough kind of critical mass of alumni around to be able to do that locally, right? I mean, the students ne- don't necessarily drive five hours across the state or something to make that connection. Right, yeah, no, pretty much everybody's like around Baton Rouge because okay. yeah, Louisiana in general, people tend to just stay here. Um, they're born <laughs> here, they stay here, they never leave here. Uh, or they end up here, then they just stay here. So yeah. I'm, I'm in the first category. <laughs> I'm from here, I'm still here, stayed here. I like to joke that I travel enough to make up for it. You know, but, <laughs> That's great. But yeah. uh, Cool. Yes, yeah, so I think it's pretty local. I mean, in my experiences, the people I also know who are mentors are also at Baton Rouge. Um, yeah, okay. Good to know. Yeah, not that and that matters much, right now, but... <laughs> right. Well, how much time do you, do you get um, with a student then during the semester? It's, they want us to meet like once a month, which would be like four or five times over right. the semester. But I've just been talking to her like every two weeks because oh, okay. she has lots of questions and is like really into it. And I was like, yeah, then nice. we can talk as often as you want. Like, that's totally <laughs> fine because I am here to help. Um, Terrific. Oh, good. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So, 
something like that maybe would maybe be helpful for undergrads because it seems helpful for her and was helpful for my last one although the last one she was like yeah maybe this isn't for me I was like well that's helpful right like you rolled it out (laughs) yeah in the past I've taught a class on how to initiate your academic career Hmm. and the whole thing is like an orientation of like part of it is if if you're a grad student you think you want to go into academia like here's what it's all about on one level. And then on another level, it's like, this is not a lottery ticket you're putting in. Like you need to think carefully about how you craft your materials, what you do in interviews and stuff, because there are very few of these jobs out there and they're incredibly competitive. So how do you, you know, I'm trying to just kind of get people to not have to learn from experience, right? Like the the hard way. And um, one of the things that I've told students is like, look, if you come into this and the, you know, you realize after a month that academia is not for you, my work is done, right? Like, yeah, and like that's at, least, okay. at least you've scratched that off the list and you can find, you know, whatever your passion is going to be. But, yeah. but that's, I think that's incredibly important because we should all play to our strengths, right? You mm-hmm. should have a, a job that doesn't feel like work, you know, that mm-hmm. it's something you want to do. Um, I guess this, I guess our conversation is coming full circle here. But. Yeah. Yeah. And that's perfectly fine. Um, but that's something I say all the time. Like I have these, these conversations with my coworker. I was like, cause she had, she's an ideas person and she wants to get her PhD. Um, I do not, but we can foresee a future where she becomes a PI and I continue to manage the projects I currently manage and then also manage her projects and then still do field work. I was like, I could see a future where that would be awesome. <laughs> like, you know. Uh, so you are fully in support of her getting that PhD. Yes. <laughs> like, yes, you should do that. Um, yeah, I just, because I, I know that that's not a thing I want to do. Like, I did my master's and I actually, I mean, I didn't hate the master's process. I didn't have a good experience, but it wasn't the research's fault. So like the research yeah. went fine. It was other circumstances. And I, I probably should have taken a break because I started grad school kind of burnt out because I had like three weeks in between undergrad and oh, starting. Wow. I was right. like, oh, I need a break. Um, which, whatever, that's in hindsight. But yeah, it was, I always call it like the best experience and the worst experience because like I finished it and I know like academia is not for me, but like right. it was kind of yeah. a struggle. Um, but now you don't have to get a PhD to do good science, you know, I like know. I'm doing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that's the thing that like, is it necessarily talked about? Because right, yeah, yeah. Because the example is a little more like you, be, you you stick on the academic track. You write proposals; they get funded. Like like nobody talks about the numbers. Like uh-huh. oh yeah, by, by the way, funding rates are like ten percent, so they're only going right. to fund one in ten proposals that come in. You know, but um, yeah, it, there there is this like mid-level infrastructure. I don't know what to call it. You know, it's like there are all these people that really facilitate and and do science actively that are, are somewhere between the graduate student and the PI. And mm-hmm. it's incredibly important. Um, but yeah, you're right. That's a little, that's even less known mm-hmm. than the academic route to begin with probably. So, huh. Yeah, I don't know what it would be called like in academia, maybe a research assistant or something, or I don't yeah. even know, but like in a government system, you're a support scientist. So oh. like there's PIs and then there's support scientists. And then there's also project managers and sometimes those are the same. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. Um, oh. So I, yeah, I don't know. But like, that's not a thing. I even knew that that was called until a couple of years ago I've been doing the job for six years. You know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like, oh, there is a name for this. Okay. All right. Good. To, yeah. Well, that's kind of important with all those government act, uh, jobs, right? It's like knowing what title you, right. you hold or could hold or something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's tricky. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, cool. it's been so nice to talk to you. Is there anything else you want to talk about? Well, this was really fun. I, I didn't know what to expect. Um, I mean, I had heard, I can't remember which one I listened to. I, I kind of grabbed one randomly mm-hmm. um, uh, to listen to and, uh, and it was great, but I, I didn't know if you had like a kind of a general like structure for what you were trying to get to or anything. Or... Not really. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, well, it's been great to meet you, Rachel, and I, yeah. I wish you the best um, with this whole endeavor. I just think it's it's fantastic, and um, I really like that it just kind of came to you out of the blue of like, how do I how do I get to talk to people and learn their stories? I mean, 
that's great. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I wish I had time to do this and come up with it on my own. <laughs> well, thank you for participating because that's just as vital as being like me who is just recording it and doing it because I need both parties. Otherwise, it's just me talking to the computer. That's right. Yeah. Dancing by yourself out on, out on the dance floor isn't, isn't as fun as right. somebody else. Yeah. It takes two to do this or at least. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So thank you for participating and it's been so nice to meet you. And you bet. Yeah. Likewise. Hey y'all, it's Rachel here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I just wanted to have a quick reminder that if you or a friend or someone you think would be a good guest, if you have any people like that, let me know or send them my way in some way. Um, And how you can do that is you can find me on Twitter at Flying Cypress. You can find the podcast on Facebook at Storytellers of STEM. That's STEM with two M's. We also have a shiny new Twitter account for the podcast, so you can find the podcast on Twitter at Storytellers42. Yes, I'm a nerd. You can also email me, storytellersofstem at gmail.com, or you can find me and everything else on my website, rachelvelani.com. So you have loads of ways to get in touch with me. I want to hear from you. Go like the Facebook page, follow me on Twitter, follow all the storytellers on Twitter since they're mostly all there, and just, you know, have a good day and thank you for listening.